choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 284 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Mid-Course Correction. Recall from previous episodes, Apollo 13 is returning to Earth, but the current trajectory will take the spacecraft out of its re-entry corridor. A mid-course correction burn will be required to put Apollo 13 on the correct course. Wednesday night, April 15th. Jim Lovell reached for his push-to-talk switch to call Capcom, Vance Brand, and ask when he could expect to receive the mid-course correction pre-burn procedures. But before he could sign on the air, Brand called Apollo 13. The Capcom evidently was thinking the same thing as Jim Lovell. Uh, the situation is that... Uh the moment we're a little bit shallow and uh, retrograde mid-course is going to put us more in the center of the corridor over. Okay, fine. I just want to make sure Fred had, had written down uh, some time ago that, uh, that our angle now was about 7-1 and we were going to do a mid-course in 17 per second but we feared that we were going to shallow it out. I, uh, I think we're up on the same line. Roger. Uh, and I guess it follows, but uh, your perigee is a little bit high right now, too. So that'll be bringing it back back down, that is. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's the important thing. With the situation clearly understood, it was now time to read up the burn procedures to level and crew. Uh, Jim, uh, Charlie has some procedures to read up for you here. I think you'll need your activation checklist if it's handy. Aquarius, that's the uh, contingency checklist. Okay, Okay, stand by, Charlie. Okay, Charlie, I've got the contingency checklist, and stand by. Okay, Jim, uh, we'd like you to turn to page uh, page 24, which is the 30-minute activation and this is going to be a procedure for the uh, mid-course uh, burn uh, that we got coming up at 105 uh, with the uh, eggs up. Over. Right to the mid-course at 105, and I'm on page 24. Okay, 30-minute uh, activation. Lovell began copying down the procedure as it was read up from Mission Control. Houston went on to explain that they were going to power up the spacecraft but not completely, which meant there would be no computer or mission timer for the burn. It was going to be manual, with Lovell controlling the engine with the start-stop switches. 
Houston continued with more burn details. The AOT in the following clip refers to the Alignment Optical Telescope. When you're in the burn attitude, you should see the sun at the very top of the AOT. Uh, it'll be splitting the cursor uh, when your cursor is set at zero. Uh, one thing to be aware of, though, that it'll slip right out of the AOT uh, very easily since it'll be very sensitive to uh, roll and yaw. In, and that's in detent too, by the way. Next point, the burn is uh, very insensitive to burn time and uh, attitude. In other words, uh, necessary, we can slip it if there's any problem at all, and uh, attitude isn't too critical. So that brings us to the point that we only have one real burn rule, that is, if <coughs> rate about any axis gets to 10 degrees of second, that's the limit. Stop the burn. Also, you should know that the pitch is the most critical attitude so far as errors are concerned in this burn, but uh, as I said, it's still not very sensitive. Lovell now had a chance to think about what he was writing down. He realized when the limb was powered down after the PC plus 2 burn, the guidance was powered down with it. When that happened, the alignment that Lovell had carefully transferred from the command module on Monday night and checked against the sun on Tuesday was gone. But as bad as this would have been before the long free return burn, or even the PC plus 2 burn, it did not present much of a problem for a mere 14 second mid-course correction burn. Because for a short burn like this, only an approximate alignment was needed, one with a margin of error of as much as 5 degrees. Also Lovell realized he already knew how to pull off a burn like this. Sixteen months ago, during Apollo 8, the Fidos and Guidos in Houston had pondered what would happen if a lunar ship on its way back from the moon suddenly lost its guidance platform and could no longer align itself by the stars. Would it be possible to point the optical sight toward Earth, line up the horizontal line on the planet's terminator, and burn the engine accurately enough to get the crew home. On Apollo 8, with Jim Lovell serving as navigator, the crew ran a few quick experiments, and sure enough, it seemed, for a short burn at least, this imprecise, eyeballing method might actually do the trick. The procedure, a decidedly last-ditch one, was tucked away in the contingency flight plan files and shortly forgotten altogether. Houston now gave instructions to Fred Hayes, telling him that when the earth was centered in his window, he should also be able to see the sun in the alignment telescope at the top of the field of view, just splitting the cursor. And if he could see the sun, that would confirm that 
that Apollo 13 was in the correct attitude. Hayes radioed back that he understood. Lovell said, Fredo, what do you say we stop this passive thermal control spin and see if we can go hunting for Earth? Whenever you're ready, Hayes said. Lovell took a few minutes to quickly run through the power-up checklist, engaging all of the instruments he would need for the burn, including the circuit breakers for his thrusters. Then he reached forward, grabbed his attitude controller, eased it slightly to the right, and vented a plume of propellant through the nozzles in the direction opposite the spacecraft's spin. With surprising responsiveness, Aquarius bumped to a stop. The passive thermal control spin ceased. On the opposite side of the tunnel, Swigert felt the rumble and realized what his crewmates were doing. He quickly finished his command module power-down procedures to put Odyssey back to sleep and floated down to the limb and resumed his spot atop the engine cover. As Lovell began shifting the spacecraft around in pursuit of Earth, Hayes leaned forward in his own triangular window and called out, Whoa! I've got the Earth! So have I, Lovell responded. You're getting good at this maneuvering, Jim. Lovell jockeyed to keep the Earth in his optical sight, and Hayes glanced into his telescope. As Houston promised, the sun was splitting the cursor and holding steady. Okay, Houston, we have our attitude set. Roger, Jim. I hope the guys in the back room who thought they'd separate knew what they're saying. And uh, I'm looking through the AOT there, Jack, and the uh, sun's right at the top, and it's about uh, maybe two degrees to the right of the cursor, so that uh, looks real good. Roger, good going. Hayes could hear that in the last few minutes, Vance Brand had gone off console and been replaced by Jack Lausma. Lovell looked at his watch. It was not time for the burn yet. Okay, Aquarius, uh, attitude looks good here, and uh, your choice when you want to start the burn. Uh, we're counting down, aren't we, or do you want us to start anytime? Your choice. You guys are getting easy. It's not time critical, Jim. I understand. Lovell turned to his crewmates and said, You guys ready to try this? Hayes and Swigert nodded yes. All right, Lovell said. Jack, since we don't have any countdown clock, you time the burn with your watch. We're firing for 14 seconds at 10%. Fredo. Since we don't have an autopilot, you grab your attitude controller and keep us from yawing too much. I'll handle pitch and roll with my controller and also take care of ignition and shutdown. Got it? Hayes and Swigert nodded yes again. Hayes then contacted Houston. And uh, Houston, uh, we uh, reset our clock and... Uh we making the burn and uh, about uh, I'll give you a hack here at uh, two minutes to go. Roger, Fred, and uh, let us know when you're going to college, will you? Okay. At his station, Lovell set the throttle to 10% and positioned one hand over the start and stop buttons. 
and the other hand around his attitude controller. At his station to the right, Hayes centered the earth in his window and kept his right hand on his own controller. Behind them, Swigert fixed his gaze on his watch. Okay, stand by. Two, one, mark it. Three minutes to go. Correction, uh, two minutes to go, Jack. Roger, two minutes. We got it. Sixty seconds of silence went by. And uh, mark it, one minute. Roger, Fred. Engine arm to descent. College. Swigert continued the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Level gently pressed the big red button set in the bulkhead and once again felt the vibration below his feet. Ignition, Lovell said to his crewmates. Ignition. Thrust looks good. Swigert looked at the second hand of his watch. Two seconds, three seconds. Hayes at his window kept staring at the distant earth. The planet began to slide to the left and the limb pilot finessed the thrusters, bringing it back to the center. Holding steady in y'all, he murmured. Five seconds, six seconds, Swigert said. Pitch and roll okay, Lovell said as the planet jittered in his optical sight. Eight, nine seconds, Swigert called. Hang on, Lovell said. The planet jumped up slightly, but the commander pitched up and caught it. Hanging on, said Hayes. Ten, Eleven, Swigert counted. Almost there, Fred, Lovell said, his index finger now hovering over the stop button. Twelve, thirteen. The planet fluttered. Fourteen seconds. Lovell pressed the button hard, far harder than he needed to. Shut down, he called. Shut down, Hayes echoed. Shut down. Instantly, the lunar module fell silent and the vibration shaking the crewmen stopped. In the optical sight, the crescent shape of Earth came to rest directly atop the horizontal line of the crosshairs. Okay, you're looking at it, Houston. Okay, looks good. Nice work. Let's hope it was. Back in Houston, it was a little past midnight, early Thursday morning, 36 hours before splashdown and with the exception of an occasional stolen hour or two, the Tiger team had not set foot out of room 210 since Monday night. After the successful mid-course burn, lead flight director Gene Krantz believed it was time for the Tiger team to take a break. Gene stood at the front of room 210 and ordered the whole team to go home and not to come back for six hours. A few controllers started to object, but Krantz made it clear there was no dissent for this order. The Tiger team had most recently been working on a way to power up and operate the command module on the two hours of electricity that its three re-entry batteries could provide. The difference tonight was that it appeared they had at last worked out the problem. The task of rationing Odyssey's electricity had, of course, fallen to 
John Aaron. While many of the controllers in the room could easily imagine someone else's subsystem running at only partial power, when it came to their own subsystem running at partial power, it was unimaginable. Most of them did not believe Aaron could pull off such a power-stretching feat, but as the hours wore on, the lead ecom's charts suggested that he had done just that. But Aaron's work was only half of what was going on in room 210. Just as important as determining how much power each load in the command module would draw when it was switched on was determining the order in which those switches should be thrown. On a normal mission, the command module power-up followed an established sequence and for good reason. Ground engineers could hardly turn on the spacecraft's guidance system before turning on the heaters that would warm it up. They could hardly engage the buses before connecting the batteries that would be feeding them power. But Apollo 13 had long since departed from the norm, and with so many of the spacecraft systems being sacrificed for this power-up, a whole new checklist had to be developed. That job fell to Arnie Aldrich. Aldrich was one of the Space Center's leading command module engineers, and as well as John Aaron understood Odyssey's electrical constraints. Aldrich also understood the checklist constraints. As soon as Aaron could work out a power budget for a particular system or subsystem, he would pass it on to Aldrich, who would figure out a switch-throwing sequence that stayed within those limits. Aldrich, in turn, would forward this plan to the INCO, ECOM, or GNC, who oversaw that part of the spacecraft. Usually, the controller would at first express disbelief at what he was saying, insisting that such a bizarre power-up would kill his subsystem. And then, after closer examination, the controller would eventually concede that it might work. The ENCO, or ECOM, or GNC would then pass the procedure on to Krantz, who would scan it, okay it, and have a courier run it over to the crew training building where Ken Mattingly was sealed up in the command module simulator. By the way, he still did not have the measles. Mattingly would run through the procedure he had been handed and then radio back to room 210 whether the new method Aldrich and Aaron developed was feasible or not. Now, Shortly after the mid-course correction and a day and a half before splashdown, the entire checklist running tens of pages and consisting of hundreds of steps was almost complete, and Krantz was at last willing to dismiss his team for the night. Shortly before he made his announcement, however, there was one more piece of business to attend to, which Aaron and Aldrich knew would spark a conflict. The way the power profiles broke down, it looked as if there would be just enough electricity to get the command module up and running, provided that one system was not turned on. 
the telemetry system had to remain off. This was a problem because the telemetry system would tell the controllers and the astronauts if they were doing the job correctly. Powering up a spacecraft without the temperature, pressure, power, and attitude readouts that would allow monitoring the equipment was very risky and could lead to disaster. But the telemetry in the spacecraft used power, and the command module didn't have any to spare. As the final pages of the checklist were being assembled, Aaron and Aldrich called the other members of the Tiger team together to explain this problem. John Aaron took a place at the head of the conference table in room 210 and said, Gentlemen, Arnie and Gene and I have been crunching the numbers every way we can. And while the checklist looks pretty good to us, there's one small glitch. From the AMP profiles we have so far, it looks like we're going to have to perform this power-up blind. And that means, someone asked. No telemetry, Aaron said flatly. The voices of protest that suddenly called out from around the table in room 210 jolted Aaron, but did not surprise him. Someone said, John, this is just asking for trouble. Aaron replied, Doing it any other way is just asking for more. Someone else complained, But no one's ever tried this kind of thing before. No one's even thought of trying it. It wouldn't be the first thing about this flight that's been irregular, Aaron replied. Another controller said, This isn't just irregular, John. This is downright dangerous. Suppose something starts to overheat or blow. We won't know until it's too late. Aaron replied, And suppose we use up all our juice monitoring the systems and don't have enough left to bring them online. Then... Where are we? The grumbling continued around the table, and Aaron, it was clear, had not made his case. Unfolding his power profiles, he looked at them slowly, then all at once seemed to notice something, a tiny flicker, part inspiration, part surrender, crossed his face. Wait a minute, Aaron said. How could I have missed this? What if we try this? How about we set aside a few amps so that when we get all powered up, we switch the telemetry on for just a few minutes and take a good scan then? I admit it's not as good as monitoring everything as we go along, but at least we'll have a chance to spot any problems and catch them before they do any damage. How would that be? The men at the table looked at Aaron and then at one another. They had no way of knowing if this was a stroke of Aaron inspiration or if he had been planning this concession all along. Either way, it was a concession, and gradually the members of the Tiger team nodded their agreement. If John Aaron, the steely-eyed missile man, believed he could power up the command module without any telemetry, who were a few garden-variety controllers to disagree. Besides, in a few minutes, Gene Krantz might let them go to sleep, 
and that was something most of them hadn't done in two days. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 284 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Mid-Course Correction, and the Donor Ceremony. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners, I'm glad you're here. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, we have finally caught up with our main podcast feed, and we have episodes 1 through 108 are now available on archive, and the rest are available on the main feed, and I will be adding some more to the archive episodes very soon. Today, we are very proud to unveil the new longevity emoji for donors who have contributed for six calendar years. These are the donors who have supported the podcast since 2013. I want to tell each and every one of you how much I appreciate the support for these past six calendar years. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, let me explain. When you support the podcast, your name is added to the donors page on the website, spacerockethistory.com. If you continue your support for another year, you get the coveted rocket emoji next to your name. For three years, you get the moon emoji, four years, the satellite emoji, five years, the shooting star, and for six years, the new emoji is the galaxy emoji. If you'd like to see what it looks like, you can check the donors page tab on the spacerockethistory.com website. The 2019 update will be available in a few days. So give us a few days to get everything transferred over to 2019. Okay, I had some afterthoughts on this episode. First, my sources were Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure's Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, The Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, The Internet Archive, Wikipedia. As you may have heard, I'm still struggling a bit with this coughing business, but I was able to make it through this episode at least. My voice failed me very many times on this episode, but I tried to edit that out as much as possible. Okay, how about this crew and the mission control team? They made a course correction to get back in the re-entry corridor by eyeballing it. That is pretty cool. Lovell is getting good at this maneuvering the limb with the command and service module still attached. When they were counting down to the fire of the engine, I wanted you to know that I sped that up a bit because I didn't want you to have to listen to no talking on the clip there. Also, in general, there is a lag time between ground transmission and crew's reply. I usually edit that dead space out so you don't have to listen to nothing happening on the audio. On the latter half of the episode, I talked about the power-up routine before splashdown and John Aaron arguing with the controllers about powering up with no telemetry. As he negotiated with the controllers, he appears to have given in a bit by saying that they could take a quick look 
at the telemetry after everything was powered up. Was that a concession that he planned to give up, or did he really just think of it on the spot? I don't have the answer to that question. But the next time I buy a car, I would like to have John Aaron with me with his master negotiation skills. <laughs> okay, I placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. Okay, we have big news on the 2018 goals. But first, I want to acknowledge the supporters who contributed last week before the 2019 deadline. These are all 2018 donors. We will announce the new 2019 donors next week. Pier Luigi from Torino, Italy, donated at the Salute Skylab level and earned his satellite emoji. Mark H. from Texas donated at the Salute Skylab level. Christian R. from California donated at the Apollo level with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. James P. donated at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. Stephen L. from Michigan donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Jeffrey N. from Iowa donated at the Apollo level. Tobias M. sent in another donation this year and moved to the Gemini level. Matthew F. sent in another donation this year and moved to the Soyuz level. John D. from the U.K. donated at the Soyuz level. Sherwood J. from Minnesota donated at the Mercury level. Jeffrey B. from Nebraska donated at the Mercury level. Neville G. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned his moon emoji. Robert W. from Bristol in the U.K. donated at the Vostok level. Tobias L. donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Richard M. donated at the Vostok level. Nathan G. from Wisconsin donated at the Vostok level. And Eric P. donated at the Sputnik level and earned his satellite emoji. Joseph G. increased his pledge on Patreon to the shuttle level with rocket emoji. Paul W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Abby L. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Angelo D. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Jeff K. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. John M. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Timothy G. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Russell pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Ben R. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Quentin W. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And Luke, Josh, and Zach J. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you for supporting your Space Rocket History podcast. And now, the big news. The podcast made its 2018 financial support goals. Last week, we passed the total donors goal of 418, and this week, we somehow passed the Patreon goal of 218. I really did not think we would make it, but I am delighted and very thankful to the supporters that we did. For 2018, our total donors were 447. That is 29 over the goal. Then, on New Year's Eve, while I was attending a Star Wars-themed New Year's Eve party, we reached the goal of 218 Patreon donors. And then, one more came in before midnight. It was a great evening for Mrs. SRH and me. Now, if you will indulge me, I want to do a little ceremony to honor the 2018 donors. You know we do the Tang Ceremony once a year when the podcast passes a milestone of episodes. 
The next one will be at 300 episodes. So I didn't want to do the tying ceremony. So I thought to myself, what else do astronauts occasionally consume? And then it came to me. How about some freeze-dried ice cream? Okay, Mrs. SRH is here with me now. Hello, everyone. And we're going to, this is a Neapolitan strawberry vanilla chocolate. And you can find these uh, freeze-dried ice creams. I think we found one at the Space Center at, in the gift shop. One of the Space, I think they probably all have this, or I think they're available on Amazon as well. Anyway, let's open up this thing. It comes in a plastic type material of foil. I guess it's plastic foil or something like that. All right. Let me take it out here. Okay. Let me break a piece off. Break a piece off there, sweetie. Okay. Now for the test. Hmm. It's a little crunchy. I think you're supposed to let it melt in your mouth. Oh, yeah, probably so. Delicious. Oh, this is good stuff, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Let's, this is the, concludes the ceremony. Thank you very much. 2018 donors. Okay, everything swallowed now. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2019, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. We are entirely listener-funded. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly do appreciate that. This week, we are giving away the new official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Ben Koning. That is Ben Koning. If you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, we will mail this out to you. Okay, we're running a little long this episode. I will try to get episode 285 out by next Thursday. Happy New Year, everyone.